The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So now we'll take our time to go into God's Word. Uh, and before we do, had some questions, practical questions, just to stir up our thinking that are relevant directly to the passage we're going to be looking at. So and I'm, this question is for those of you who are Christians, who are believers, who know Jesus Christ, and, and you're sure about that. You're born again. You're a child of God. You're in the family of God. You've been adopted and redeemed, and you belong to him, and you know God in a very personal and intimate way through the person of Jesus Christ and only through him, and you're secure in that, and you know that the Spirit of God lives in you, testifying with your spirit that you belong to Abba, Father. That's what it means to be a Christian, someone who is spiritually born again through the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection from the dead. So, Christian, just a couple of questions. Uh, question number one is, when was the last time you shared the gospel completely with an unbeliever? Think about that for a second. Just answer that in your own mind. Reflect. Maybe you need to reflect a little bit. Okay, it wasn't last week. Maybe it wasn't last month. And the complete gospel. When was the last time you as a Christian had an opportunity to share the complete gospel in one conversation with an unbeliever. Complete gospel. Maybe for some of you, well, I can't recall. Um, maybe it's been a year. Maybe it was last week or yesterday. That's great. But if you're a Christian, you should be able to remember at least a time, which leads me to my next question. If you're a Christian, have you ever shared the gospel completely with an unbeliever? that you can recall. I have talked with plenty of believers over the years, many who have been Christians a long time, who were just honest and said, you know what? I have never shared the gospel with an unbeliever. And I have been a Christian for 14 years. And I appreciate their honesty. I can't relate to that, but I uh, appreciate their honesty. But it's a good reminder for us, we've got to do that kind of inventory. Uh, a very important question. The next one is, if you're a Christian, have you at one time or another shared the, the complete gospel with all of your immediate family members? I mean, not extended family members, but immediate ones, the ones in your life. Say, maybe you live with unsaved family members, and you're a Christian, but have you ever gave the complete gospel at least one time. Very important. There are times um, where Christians admit, no, I've, I've never shared the gospel with my unsaved siblings or my unsaved parents or my unsaved grandpa that lives with us or uncle. And then my last question is, have you ever shared the gospel completely with somebody and then saw them repent and get saved? as a result of your planting seeds. And it didn't have to be the same conversation. Maybe you shared the gospel with them, and then maybe they got saved six months later or six years later, but they circled back around and said, you know that conversation you had with me? Uh, God has brought that seed of the gospel to fruition, and, and I gave my life to Christ. Thank you for doing that. So have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had somebody tell you, thank you for sharing the gospel with me, and they got saved as a result, um, 
really, from God's point of view, our, our responsibility is just faithfully planting the seed. Because we, we can't change a hardened heart. We can't save people. But we can definitely give them the gospel, because that's what God uses, that they might be saved. And every once in a while, God allows us the blessing and the reward in this life to hear about it. I mean, you could be a faithful Christian for 40 years, share the gospel all the time, and then not one time during your life do you see somebody come to Christ. You would still be a faithful child of God and believer and steward of the gospel. Uh, Salvation, that's really ultimately up to God in his sovereign work, but we have our job to do. And every once in a while, uh, we're blessed with the results. So it's like we got Saturday evangelism coming up, and we've been doing that for a couple years. And as far as I know, hardly ever... In two years of knocking on doors in our neighborhood, has there ever been an occasion where we talked to somebody who was just an unbeliever, cold turkey, heard the gospel, and there on the porch got saved? That just rarely happens. That doesn't mean God isn't working, because he's working on the heart with that seed of the truth, and the Holy Spirit continues to do his work 24-7 until that person leaves this earth. So I ask those questions because they're all related to uh, salvation and they're also directly related to an attribute of God. What's an attribute of God? A longtime Christian asked me that one time when I was teaching a class on the attributes of God and he didn't know what the attributes of God were. Uh, It's a characteristic of God, uh, a personality trait of God, if you will. But they're called technically the attributes of God. So love is an attribute of God. Holiness is an attribute of God. Um, and he has many attributes that are revealed in Scripture. And these questions are at the heart of accentuating one of the attributes of God, maybe that we don't often think about, that's going to be highlighted and profiled in our Scripture passage today, which is in Luke chapter 15. We're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you wanted to turn to Luke chapter 15, 1 through 10, if you weren't here last week, we finished up Luke 14. Uh, we're doing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as given in the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters, his three-and-a-half-year ministry, gives a little bit about his birth and how he entered the world, and then it is silent until his public ministry, which is three-and-a-half years, which began when he was age 30. And that's the bulk of what Luke is covering, is the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sent Messiah, fulfilling Old Testament scripture, to the land of Israel, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom is at hand because he is the promised Messiah and also he is the Savior. So that's what we've been learning from Luke and Jesus is validating his message uh, that he is true, that he represents Yahweh. He is one with the Father and his credentials are that he does miracles like no other. He validates his ministry with his miracles. That's what he's been doing. It's attracted people, many people. Uh, He has accumulated thousands and thousands of disciples over the course of three years. We're now in Luke 15 in the latter part of his ministry, uh, probably the last six months or so. He's left Galilee where he spent two and a half years of doing public ministry in all the towns proclaiming who he is. He built up, not intentionally, he, he, he wasn't trying to gather disciples, but by virtue of his character, the way he spoke with authority, the miracles that he did, the message that he brought, uh, the hope that he also spoke with, and also the confrontation and challenges that he brought That's what uh, brought about this large, growing crowd of followers or disciples. Many of these disciples weren't even believers in him. They were students following him, looking, intrigued, listening, learning, sometimes questioning. 
So, uh, and as a result of accumulating all these disciples, he was a rabbi. That's what a rabbi was. A rabbi was a teacher. And if you had a following, you were basically a rabbi. He didn't go to the, tech, the uh, accepted rabbi schools, though, in Israel or in Jerusalem. So he was an outcast by the other qualified, sanctioned rabbis like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their little cliques and their little schools. And there's Rabbi Jesus who has more students and followers than any of them. And he didn't even go to their school. How did that happen? Uh, So Jesus, the rabbi, Jesus, the teacher, everywhere he goes, he is teaching. That's primarily what he does. And he said he came for this purpose to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And so now he's at the end of his ministry, about six months left. And that takes us to Luke 15. And here in Luke 15, actually the entire chapter has three parables. Three parables. They are three parallel parables. Parables. I know that's a mouthful. There are three parables that basically teach the same thing. They all emphasize one another. So the second one develops the first one. The third parable develops and advances and makes more specific the first two parables. And they all teach one main truth. And that main truth is an attribute of God. A characteristic of God. A, a f- often forgotten and neglected attribute of God, particularly by the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, and we'll see that. And that attribute is the joy of God. The joy of God, if I had you just briefly, Kate, in 60 seconds, list as many attributes of God that you can. It'd be interesting to see what your list was, what was on the list, and what was left off the list. I wonder how many would actually just put joy or put joy as one of the... um, primary ones. I mean, just think about it for a minute. When you think of God, think about God for a second. It's hard to do, isn't it, for us? Because many of us immediately want to think of a thing, an image, a person, as in a human man, when you're thinking about God. Well, don't do that, because God the Father is not a man. He doesn't have a body. He's spirit. So, actually, I'm asking you to do the impossible. I apologize. (laughs) To think about what God is like. He's not an old man sitting up there on his throne with a cane and all rickety and although he's described with human attributes at times as God's trying to accommodate our finiteness and our fullness to communicate to us yes God is a person he's not a man God is a person he doesn't have a body God is a person but he is a spirit God is a person but he's invisible but God the Father is a person he has personal attributes characteristics and he has many characteristics and attributes about him. Communicable attributes and incommunicable ones. Ones that only he has, like his transcendence and his infinity and his eternality and then his communicable attributes. The attributes that he actually shares with us in his grace. And that's what it means that you were made in God's image. Every human being, whether you're saved or not, you were made in God's image. What does that mean? At a minimum, that means you share some of the attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God. God is a person, you are a person. God has a mind, you have a mind, and so on. And one of those attributes that God has that we share, that he shares with us, is joy, the attribute of joy. So when you're thinking about God, a lot of times people think that God's some grumpy old man up in heaven with a cane ready to smack somebody over the head for every wrongdoing like a policeman and his whistle and his red flag, so that every infraction he's pointing it out and he's He never smiles, he never laughs, he never has joy. He's a killjoy, in fact. That's God. That is what many people think about God. 
completely unfortunate. That's a distortion. That's a perversion of God. That's blasphemy, actually. And many others accuse Christians or those who believe in the New Testament and Jesus. They say, oh, you have an inconsistent God. You get Jesus, who was all about love in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, uh, the God of Israel. He's just a God of wrath. Some people say, oh, I prefer the New Testament because it's a, a God of love. I don't like going in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all about God's wrath. His love is missing. So let me read this passage. Just listen carefully. This is in 1400 B.C. in the days of Moses. As God is giving the Mosaic Covenant to Moses and about 2 million Jews plus after they were rescued from Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai now and then God is going to lead them eventually to the promised land. But God is giving Moses, their representative and prophet, the law of God. That they are to obey. And he does that. And God is having face-to-face conversations with Moses. God doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a body. But face-to-face is phraseology, just meaning this just personal, intimate conversation with Moses like God has with nobody else. Speaking of a friend of Jesus, Moses was a friend of Yahweh in a very unique, personal, intimate, deep way. And Moses was interacting with God up on that mountain, and he'd see the glory of God, smoke, fire, and all that. But he didn't see a personage, and then finally Moses pleads, With God, God, show me your glory. Glory is the full manifestation of all of God's attributes. God, I want to see what you look like. And God says, no, you cannot see what I look like. No man can see me and live. Not even you, Moses. But I'll show you a little bit of my glory. I'll show you my backside. I'll cover your eyes. So you can see a hint of my glory and my attributes. And as I go by, Moses, I will proclaim my name to you. My my name is the fullness of his attributes and his character. And so that's what God did. He took Moses and put him up in a little cleft of a rock where nobody else was around. And then uh, listen to this astounding uh, account of this in Exodus 34. The Lord descended, the Lord, the infinite, almighty, eternal God of the universe that is a spirit and uh, is not confined by space or time. Yahweh descended. How did he do that? Well, in a manifestation of a theophany, the Lord descended in the cloud, in a cloud, and stood there with Moses. Some of God's glory was manifest and stood there with Moses. Exodus 34, verse 5. And Moses called upon the name of Yahweh. Just an unbelievable time of worship. Probably fell on his face. Crying out to Yahweh. And then Yahweh passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed. Here's what God said. He proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord God. And then he's going to list his dominant attributes that characterize him. As a God, the Lord, the Lord Elohim, compassionate and gracious. There's the first attributes God lists about his character. So when you go to the Old Testament, when people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's just a mean, angry God. That is a complete distortion and misrepresentation of reality. Uh, God gives his name. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal one. I am the Lord Elohim. I am the creator. Not only that, I am compassionate and gracious. I am a personal God, and I am compassionate. I hurt for people. I hurt for those in need. Uh, And I take action when I hurt on their behalf to rescue them. That's what that means. I hurt in my gut for us as humans. So I am a compassionate and gracious God. Get this, slow to anger. God only has anger about one thing. That's sin. Our sin. Slow to anger, I am patient. Listen to all these attributes about God. He is eternal. He is creator. 
He is the infinite one. And then one on the personal ones, he is compassionate. He is gracious. He is patient. He is abounding in loving kindness. What a beautiful phrase. The Hebrew word is chesed. Uh, the, the faithfulness of God, the faithful covenant love of God at the most personal and intimate level. This is the God of the Bible. This is Yahweh. And this is Jesus when he became God incarnate. All these attributes, uh, slow to anger, patient, abounding in loving kindness, and in truth. There's the balance. And truth. I don't compromise my truth. I am the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands. For thousands. I love people. I love people. You could say I love sinners. God loves sinners. Who forgives iniquity. Can I get an amen on that one? Wow, that's all of us. That's all of us. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he's still talking about himself. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So there's the balance. He's a compassionate God. He's a personal God. He's a merciful, merciful, loving, forgiving God. But there are conditions. Is the love of God unconditional? Don't say yes. I'll try that again. Is the love of God unconditional? People say that all the time. That's completely unbiblical. It's not. It's actually the most conditional love you can possibly imagine. The loving, forgiving, eternal Merciful, compassionate love of God is conditioned upon knowing him properly and the conditions by which you can know him. For us, that's, it is, the love of God is conditioned upon knowing Jesus Christ and believing in his gospel. If you don't know Jesus Christ and believe in his gospel, you cannot have the love of God. You only get the wrath of God. Is the love of God unconditional? No. For us today, it is conditioned upon his stipulations based on Jesus Christ and his gospel. And that's why you have this balance of a compassionate, forgiving God, and yet at the same time, God is honest, and he says, by no means I will leave the guilty unpunished. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. God always punishes the guilty, and spiritually and eternally speaking, what does that mean? Who are the guilty that go, that get punished? Well, it's the guilty who don't get forgiven. That's who it is. Who does God punish? By no means leaving the guilty unpunished. And for us today, the guilty are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And the guilty are those who continue to put their face in God's fist in the gospel and continue to reject Jesus Christ, his person, and his terms for salvation. And if they die in their guilt, if they die in that rejection, then they are condemned to hell and they receive eternal wrath from God. They will be punished. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Punished This loving, compassionate, gracious God. So when you think about God, the God of the Bible, you need to think about all of his attributes that he has revealed, and they are all in perfect harmony and all in perfect balance. And that's how we need to think about God. I will not leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So uh, that's just one of the best passages, I think, that just gives us that perfect balance of all the attributes of God. And then just one passage, if you go to Zephaniah, if you know where that is, that's in your Old Testament at the very end with those Z books. Uh, you've got Zechariah, Zephaniah. Let me, let me just read this passage to you. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. This is God talking, and he's talking about sinful, wayward, wayward wicked Israel that has for centuries now disobeyed God. Uh, in, indulged and engaged in idolatry and sexual immorality of the grossest 
sort, and all they deserved was wrath and punishment and chastisement. And God gave much of that, and yet he never lets his people go. He made an eternal covenant with Israel. They're his people. They're his elect nation. He's not going to abandon them. So they have a future, and so this passage here in Zechariah is a prophecy about the future when God will woo them, he will soften them, he will call them as a nation to repentance. Uh, and this, this beautiful promise of a verse regarding uh, the future Israelites at the end of the age who will repent of their sin, and the Lord will open his arms, and he'll call them from all the corners of the earth. And verse 17 says, and then he'll gather those who uh, believe in Yahweh and trust in him and accept finally his Messiah, the Savior, Jesus and Yahweh, your God. And so now God's talking to them. He's gathering. It's, it's like he's almost holding them like a baby. And the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. And this God, your God, he will exult over you with joy. Like, like a mother over a newborn baby. That, that's the imagery of God. Even who is a God of holiness and wrath, who must punish sin. When there is repentance, he exults over the repentant one with joy. He will be quiet in his love. So his tender love with these repentant sinners. And then it goes back to this. And God will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Shouts, shouting with joy. So the God of the Bible, what are his attributes? Well, he has many attributes, holiness, but also Love is one of his attributes. Forgiveness is one of his attributes. And joy. Joy. And that's what this story, that's what these three, three parables, let's go back to Luke 15. And that's what these three parables accentuate, highlight and profile, is the joy of God the Father. So the question is, what does, does God have joy? The answer is yes, clearly. And we could have read many other Old Testament verses that clearly show that God of the Old Testament has joy and even in the new testament and he's actually the source of true joy you can't have true joy apart from knowing jesus christ by the way today you can't have true joy apart from knowing the god of the universe you have to know god after all what is eternal life by definition what is eternal life some people would say well it's living forever and ever and ever and i'd say well not necessarily that's not the best definition actually Jesus gave a definition of eternal life in John 17, 3, as he's praying to the Father just before he died. And he said, in definitional terms, this is eternal life. Wow! I can't wait to know what follows, because Jesus is giving a definitive definition of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they, that people, that my disciples, would know you, God the Father. That is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you and his Son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. It's not the quantity of life, it is the quality of life. Eternal life is knowing God, knowing the true God, knowing him for who he really is as he's revealed in scripture. And for us today, there's only one way to know the true God of the universe, and that is through Jesus Christ, and it's the Jesus of the Bible. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said that, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father who is in heaven except through me. So knowing God. So if we know God then we should know one of his most basic and fundamental attributes, and that is that he has joy. And what gives God joy? That makes for a wonderful Bible study, going from Genesis to Revelation and looking up every time to find out what brings God joy. And Jesus highlights one of those things that brings God joy. If not, maybe it's very possible this is the, the main thing that gives God joy of what happens in chapter 15. 
the main thing that gives God joy. Let's follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Today we'll just cover the first two shorter parables, and then next week, maybe, uh, we'll do the third parable, depending upon how far we get uh, this morning. Don't want to rush it too quickly, uh, because this is so rich. There's so much here. As a matter of fact, the parable, uh, and the third parable here in verses 11 through 32 is timelessly been one of the favorite parables that Jesus ever taught by people of all ages. It's masterful. But let's read about the first two parables because they're similar and they will accentuate the third one. Uh, let's remember uh, chapter 14 where we finished last week. Jesus is making his way down, uh, going to Jerusalem to be crucified with his 12 apostles, the 70 disciples, small group of women. And then just this mass intrigued group of disciples in the thousands, a mixed mob, including his enemies, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, who want to kill him. And they're just kind of following along in this huge, massive parade, slow-moving entourage, going down, heading to Jerusalem, and they will perfectly time it so that he ends up there at the Passover. And he has to cross over the Jordan, going into Perea. He's going to cross back over. We don't exactly know where he is here, but he was out there abroad somewhere, And he just gave a message to thousands, if not tens of thousands, of the multitude last week where his call to discipleship, when basically he said, if you want to keep following me, meaning if you really want to know me and be one of mine and belong to me, not just by affiliation, proximity, or association, but know me personally and be one of my true disciples eternally and forever, you need to basically forsake everything for me. Forsake everything. I am the Lord. I will be your master. You bow the knee to me and no one else. To the point of even hating yourself. Otherwise you will be cast out. So it was a very strong call to discipleship and evangelism and commitment. That's what he just said. And he ended that sermon by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you have ears, listen carefully. Well, there were many in the audience who had ears perked up when Jesus said, And that was kind of a challenge at the end of verse 14. Uh, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Based on everything that I just said. I know I've ostracized many of you. I've made many of you angry. I've made some of you question. Some of you still don't get it. But there are some out there who have a mustard seed of faith. I know you're out there. Keep listening. Keep listening. He who has an ear... Let him hear. That was a a gentle, subtle call of Jesus to keep following me. You're on on the right path. Well, all 10,000 of them didn't follow Jesus. Just a few, probably. A few. And it was the same demographic. It was a motley crew. Now let's go to chapter 15. Who was it? They listened, and uh, some of them took Jesus up on his call, and they, they approached him, and they said, oh, I want to hear more. I'm hungry. This is intriguing. I'm afraid. I'm fearful. I need a savior. I'm, I've never heard such a thing, Jesus. You speak with authority and like no one before. This is completely unprecedented. I'm, I want to hear more. This is kind of the idea. Whatever he did, he, he preached something in their soul. Who was that? Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners in that mob were coming near, drawing near to Jesus to listen to him further. That's what that means. Imagine that, thousands, and they're just crushing in. Some of them were probably way back, way in the back, and they're pushing over people like at a rock concert, climbing over people, dangerous. 
We know that from chapter 12. So they're, they're crushing in on Jesus, fighting through the crowd. And who are they? They are tax collectors and the sinners. Definite article. The sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. So here they come. Like uh, roaches at night. Whoop, when you turn the light or whatever it is. They're dirty. And they're all gathering. And you can imagine the rest of the crowd that didn't come forward. They were a mixed mob. Some were like, oh, no, I'm just going to wait till he gives more free bread. Then I'll go up. Others were, yeah, I'm not quite sure who this guy is. Others were, wow, that was pretty offensive. He's talking about my mother. I'm not going to forsake my mother or my wife. Who is this guy? And, and then you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees, or the Pharisees and the scribes. They hated Jesus. They've been tra- tracking him down for three and a half years. They're in the audience. So when the scribes and the Pharisees see all these uh, dirty tax collectors and sinners gathering to Jesus, they are completely incensed. This guy is not a legitimate rabbi. He's more famous than we are. His crowds are bigger than ours. He stands there and talks authoritatively about himself all the time. He equates himself with Yahweh. Who does this guy think he is? He's deceiving the people. He's deceiving the masses. And the masses uh, were challenged to deal. You had to deal with the masses. Even though the scribes and Pharisees didn't like the masses, you got to deal with them because they are influential. They sway elections. And so they see this, so that's why we got verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're always, in Luke, if you haven't picked this up uh, since chapter 5 of Luke, they're together. The Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes. And consistently, they have been the enemies of Jesus. We've seen that repeatedly. Here they are again. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. Mumble, 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 mumble. This is a unique word in the New Testament used only two times, and it is emphatic. And by the way, it's on the beginning of the sentence of verse 2 in the Greek text, meaning it was completely emphatic. It's emphatic by virtue of how long of a word it is with a preposition on the front of it, and it's emphatic by being placed at the beginning of the sentence. They were not just grumbling to themselves. They were grumbling loud enough to hear them amidst this crowd. We know Jesus heard them. He knows they're grumbling. They're not trying to hide it. Early on in the book of Luke, it says they were grumbling within themselves. What were they doing? Trying to be dignified and hide it and not anymore. They have no conscience. They've let loose. It's a free-for-all. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about him loud and in front of his face so he can hear us. Well, he did. And here's what they're grumbling about. This is what they were saying. This is what they opposed. This is why they despised Jesus so much. This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Wow, think about that. That's his crime. That's why they hated Jesus. That's why he was so evil. That's why they killed him. That's why they killed him. What did Jesus do his whole life? Just two things, basically, if you could summarize it. He spoke the truth, and he did good. That's it. That's all he did. Perfectly, 100% of the time, Jesus never sinned. All he did was speak truth and do good. And the more he did that, and the longer he did that, his enemies became more and more enraged at the notion that he does what? That he speaks truth and does good. Therefore, we need to kill him. What kind of twisted, wicked, perverted person thinks that way? Who is absolutely opposed to somebody who just speaks truth and does good. 
Well, it reveals their heart, that's for sure. It reveals where they are with God, that's for sure. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3, so Jesus told them this parable. See, he knew he, he could hear it. So Jesus told them this parable. Actually, it should say, so Jesus told them the following three parables. It says this parable because it's the same parable three times over. It's the same message, exactly. It's got four main items to it. And they're repeated in all three parables. And, it, and the one same conclusion. All three parables are making one simple point, and it's the same point in all three, and it is given directly to address the naysayers, the Pharisees, and the scribes who made this statement. So what are these parables? So maybe historically you read these parables and you thought, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's a nice story. Oh, that's special. Maybe you even didn't even finish reading the third one because you thought it ended at verse 24. Oh, that's lovely. No? All three parables say the exact same thing. It's showcasing an attribute of God that the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes who are supposed to be the religious leaders, the pastors, the priests, the Bible teachers of the community and the theocracy of Israel, they don't even know the true God. They don't even know one of God's greatest attributes. That he's a saving God, that he saves pathetic sinners, and that he has joy doing it. They miss the boat. So what do you have on your hands? You have a false teacher. You have a false shepherd. And he's going to expose them. So he tells this parable three times over to make one simple point. Verse 4, what man among you, he's talking to the Pharisees and scribes, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine sheep in the open pasture there, and then go after the one sheep which is lost until he, the shepherd, finds it. Verse 5, and when he has found the lost sheep, he lays it, picks it up, lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Hooray! I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that's the first parable. It's the parable of the one lost sheep. And then he goes on with the second parable right after. Or what woman, what woman among you, no doubt there were all kinds of women in the crowd of thousands, even though the message is directed at the Pharisees and the scribes as a rebuke. Or what woman among you, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, this is a woman who is probably quite poor, doesn't have much means. Every silver coin is precious and highly valuable. That's clearly the implication. A woman of the village, what woman, if she has ten coins, and then she loses a coin, she loses valuable money, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds her lost coin. And then when she's found it, she calls together her female friends and female neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Hooray! Verse 10, In the same way I tell you, in the same way there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over the sinner who repents. So there they are. There's the first two parables. And then we'll 
Uh, after these two, we'll look at the third parable, which basically says the same thing, uh, the same message. Uh, the, the pattern is the same in all three of these parables. In terms of four main items, there's uh, something that's valuable that is lost, and then there's a deliberate search for that valuable commodity, and then it was found, it's recovered, and then there's great rejoicing. So all four of those elements are in all three of these parables. And just a reminder, we've, we've already done, I don't know if you realize this, I think we've done 17 parables already in Luke. So I've talked about those, but just by way of reminder, when Jesus taught parables, uh, they're not allegories. Um, parables are like a, an extended analogy, that's all. It's like a metaphor. And it's, it's supposed to be simple language that universally everybody can understand throughout time. And that's true. I mean, a child could almost understand these, an elementary student, if you just read them at face value. They understand the historical context and what's going on. That's why they're so uh, amazing. Jesus is a teacher because he's the master teacher. He can relate to anybody. And this wasn't just relevant 2,000 years ago. Does money relate to us today? Oh, yeah. You lose money? Oh, yeah. We get that. So Jesus, the master teacher, um, giving the context in universally understood terms for all people, all classes of people, whether they're spiritual, unspiritual, and also uh, different countries, and through time, 2,000 years later, still applicable as ever. And at the root of it, his point is he wants to communicate one spiritual truth in every parable, one main spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth here is that uh, if you truly are a shepherd of God and know God and represent God, then you should know him because that's eternal life. And if you know him, then you know his attributes. And if you know his attributes, you know his most basic attributes. And if you know his attributes, you know that he is, one of his attributes is that he's a saving God. And if you know him that he's a saving God, you know, because you know God personally, that saving sinners gives him joy. And not only does it give him joy, that's the greatest thing that gives him joy. Or it's the thing that gives him the greatest joy, is saving sinners. That is the point of all three parables. It's really that simple. And he's telling these so-called religious leaders, you know what? You don't even get it. You don't even get the most basic thing in truism about the true God of Israel and of the world and of, the, of creation and of Scripture. God is a Savior. And he has joy in saving. So let's go ahead and go back. And uh, I gave you a handout there just to follow along. Uh, again, it's always almost impossible to outline um, narrative stories, but... At least it's just kind of structured to maybe hang your thoughts on as we walk through in a little more detail. Uh, so let's start at the first verse, go into deeper detail so we understand uh, the context here. Uh, now, verse 1. Point number 1 is the true shepherd rebukes the self-righteous, verses 1 through 3. That's the main point that I want to emphasize here that Jesus is giving. The true shepherd, and that's Jesus. Uh, really, the shepherd is God, isn't it? That's Psalm 23. The Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. And often when people have a memorial service or a funeral or especially if the person knew the Lord, they like to have Psalm 23 read, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a beautiful psalm. It's only six verses long. It's poetic. It's profound. It is deep. But it truly reflects the heart of God, the gracious shepherd. The New Testament says that Jesus is the shepherd of your soul. If you're a Christian, isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the shepherd of of your soul. Peter uh, 
wrote that, and Peter was a Jew. He grew up in the synagogue. He had Psalm 23 memorized. He knew that God was a shepherd and that the greatest shepherd, first and foremost, was God, Yahweh, Savior, Creator, the only Creator, the only Savior. And then Peter calls Jesus the shepherd because Jesus believed that, I mean, Peter believed that Jesus was one with Yahweh, with God the Father, God incarnate. Profoundly insightful as Peter was led by the Spirit. So God, the Creator, is your shepherd if you know Him. Jesus is the shepherd of your soul if you know Him. Peter also calls Jesus the great shepherd. The chief shepherd is the terminology. Literally, it means the senior pastor. Senior pastor. And we emphasize that here at our church. Who's the senior pastor at Creekside Bible Church? Jesus, 1 Peter 5, says so. So he's the shepherd of your soul. He is the chief shepherd of the church. He is the great shepherd, according to Hebrews. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. There are bad shepherds out there, by the way. They're called false shepherds. They quote the Bible. They use Christian lingo. They're on Christian radio. They write books in Christian bookstores. They are bad shepherds. Jesus in his talk there in John, when he called himself a good shepherd, you know what he's doing? He's comparing himself to bad shepherds. He literally, hirelings, false shepherds. You need to know the truth, the true and the false and make a distinction and be discerning. You know, there are Christians who have a hard time with that. Oh, that sounds so harsh. Could be the last Sunday sermon, if you were not here, it was a harsh sermon. And it had nothing to do with my embellishment. I was just reading Jesus' words. And it was hard. If you want to follow me and be my disciple, then you need to hate your mother and hate your parents and hate your family and hate your spouse and hate yourself. It was like, wow. And even be willing to die. You can't get any more harsh than that. I would imagine some people didn't come back to church this week because of last week's sermon. That would not surprise me. But Jesus is just speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. And this is a beautiful compliment. Because on the heels of that, uh, these three parables reflect, uh, just like no other passages, the compassionate, loving, merciful, gracious character and nature of God. Yes, there is a high call to repentance. But when you listen to God and obey, soften your heart and repent and follow him, then it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what sins you have committed or how many or how long. God's arms are open for you and ready to receive you and welcome you with joy to embrace you and to forgive you because that gives him joy. That's the point of these parables. So now all the tax collectors, going back to verse 1, and the true heart of the shepherd is... The shepherd, the true shepherd, rebukes the self-righteous. So we see that in verses 1 and one through 3. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him. And I already talked about that. Just one note on the tax collectors. A tax collector was a Jew who has betrayed his fellow Jews and decided, you know what, I'm going to work for the pagan Romans because they pay good. And my job description is go out and bully fellow Jews and steal money from them and give it to Caesar. That's what a tax collector was. Abandon my Jewish religion, my Jewish faith, abandon Yahweh, and work for these pagans for filthy lucre so I can get rich as I betray my own countrymen. That's what a tax collector, they were despised more than anybody else in the culture of the time. 
They were dirty. So a good law-abiding, synagogue-going, mosaic-following Jew in the days of Jesus would have absolutely nothing to do with a tax collector. As a matter of fact, here he comes. Look out, stay away. They are dirty. They are unclean. And they had no chance of salvation. They had no chance of being redeemed. They had no chance of being forgiven of God. They have crossed the line. That's their theology. That is what they believe. They were irredeemable, incorrigible. That was what they believed. Uh, And now all of these tax collectors, the, the most lowly of the low, the most despicable, sinful compromisers imaginable in the eyes of a, a Jew. And who was one of uh, Jesus' apostles? Levi the tax collector. Levi the tax Boy, what a motley crew Jesus got. He collated together those 12 guys. You got some fishermen. You got a zealot that just likes to kill people. Simon the Zealot, hey man, can you put your sword down? No, leave that sword there and follow me. And then there was Levi the tax collector. Dirty, filthy. And then Simon the Zealot, what did he like to do for a living? Kill tax collectors. And what was Levi, Matthew, the apostle, a tax collector? Here, here, join me, uh, Simon the Zealot. And you can join with Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. You know those guys that you hate and despise so much and want to kill all the time? He's going to be in our group too. So these were tax collectors, Levi, notorious sinner. Now all the tax, all of them, they knew who they, they had a network. They had membership cards. Hey, let's, let's go, man. Let's see what this Jesus is all about. Tax collectors and these sinners, these sinners, who's that? Uh, everybody that Pharisees and scribes considered a despicable, unforgivable, detestable sinner. That's what, that's what that means. These sinners. They weren't sinners in the eyes of God. They weren't sinners in the eyes of Jesus because who does God think are sinners? Everybody. But these sinners, the designated class of sinners as constituted and considered by the religious leadership of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Those sinners, like who? They're all the irredeemable, like Gentiles. You were beyond salvation if you were a Gentile. A Samaritan, you were of a mixed breed. You were beyond salvation. They were sinners. The tax collectors, they're in that group. Anybody that was unclean and had a disease or a deformity. You were born with a deformity. You were born blind because somebody committed sin in your immediate family. And you deserve it. You're you're cursed by God. You're dirty. You're unclean. You're unforgivable. You're irredeemable. That's what they believed. These were the sinners. Uh, shepherds, by the way, as a class of people that were all over Israel. You needed shepherds in Israel. They were below the Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees and scribes, they did not interact with shepherds. Why? Because shepherds were lowly. They were dirty. They stunk. It was not uh, a prestigious uh, life's calling at all. Many of them had a notorious reputation of being thieves and dishonest when they were hired shepherds. So even many shepherds were considered the lowliest of the low, according to the Pharisees and the scribes. So these were the sinners. So all the sinners come out, and all the sinners and all the tax collectors bustling around Jesus. Yes, you said, there's more. Tell us more, Jesus. And then the Pharisees and the scribes, they start grumbling. Look at this man. There it is. There's our evidence. Got him. He's a false messiah. He's a false teacher. 
Look at his audience. Look at his disciples. Look at who follows him. It's the sinners. It's the unclean. It's the unacceptable. It's those that Yahweh despises. His ministry is illegitimate. Don't listen to him. He's a false teacher. Don't accept Jesus. They've been saying it for three and a half years. And so this parable is a rebuke to these self-righteous, religious Pharisees and scribes. It's a rebuke. And it's a rebuke. It's a twofold rebuke. It's to expose the fact that they don't know God and they don't know the greatest attribute of God. And that is love for sinners and joy when he saves sinners like these. It's also a rebuke to let them know, no, you need to endorse my ministry. You've been undermining me the entire time for three and a half years. You're thwarting the work of God. This is a full-scale, public, open rebuke of these false teachers, putting them to shame. They know it because they're furious when he's all done. They know that Jesus was pointing the finger at them. You know, the bad guy in every one of these stories, that's you. Because you reject God's heart, which is saving sinners, and you reject my mission. I came here from, from the Father to save sinners. He's going to say that explicitly in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came into this world to save sinners. That's his purpose. That's his mission. I do one thing. Jesus said, I came to save sinners. And so they reject this. They do not accept this. They have twisted scriptural religion on its head. And Jesus is exposing this again. He's been exposing it the entire time. They don't listen. So he rebukes the self-righteous. And sadly, the self-righteous typically, uh, probably 100% of the time, the self-righteous, by the way, who Jesus, he gets in a lot of tussles and arguments and fights and verbal altercations in the Gospels, just about every chapter. It's always with the same people. It's with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees uh, pretty much every time. And Jesus saves his greatest wrath and rebuke for the self-righteous, and they're usually religiously self-righteous. They have, a, they have a religion on the surface, but it's a false religion. It's works righteousness. It's driven by pride. They're good with themselves. They don't hate themselves. They don't want to die to self. They don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. They won't bow a knee to any lord or master. They're okay. Their, their bumper sticker or adage is, God helps those who help themselves. That's popular now, I've talked to Christians who actually believe that, that that represents Christianity. God helps those who help themselves. I'm just here today to tell you uh, that's from the pit of hell. That is the exact opposite of the Christian message. Jesus came to, to seek and to save those who could not help themselves. But the Pharisees and the scribes, no, they're self-sufficient. I'm good. I don't need a savior. My friends are good. My lifestyle's good. I'm Okay. And so Jesus came to rebuke that and expose that, and he does. And I'm just going to close with this comment about, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, the role of a pastor, a true pastor, because we're talking about true shepherds. Every church that is a true church of God on earth, all the local churches, in God's design, he has called a group of shepherds to lead that congregation to shepherd that church, to take care of the sheep of that church. This group of shepherds together, they're called elders and overseers. Pastor. Pastor is the same word as shepherd. It's the exact same Greek word. A shepherd is a pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. It's the same word. And what do pastors do? Pastor is the noun. Shepherding is the verb. We shepherd the sheep. 
And in the church, primarily, what does a pastor do to shepherd the sheep? The verb, the action, is teaching. It's teaching God's truth, primarily. It's teaching God's truth. It's praying for the people, equipping the people, loving the people, modeling for the people. But primarily, it's all driven and dictated by the truth of Scripture. That's what we do. So what should you expect from a faithful shepherd is one who does what Jesus does, and that's teach truth, teach God's truth, teach it undiluted. And sometimes that entails rebuking and exposing other false shepherds who fail to do that. They do just the opposite. They deceive people. They deceive their sheep, and sometimes those sheep are actual real Christians. And, and I need to bring that up because a huge part of the ministry of Jesus in all four Gospels is him getting upset at false teachers and false shepherds and exposing them and taking them on toe-to-toe and locking horns and speaking the truth and not backing down and being courageous. That's a good shepherd. Pastors need to do that when it's appropriate. Absolutely necessary. And I know there are people of a constitution and emotionally that, and psychologically, oh, I don't like all that conflict. That doesn't seem loving. It's in the Bible. It's what Jesus did. Jesus modeled it. Jesus did it all the time. Maybe I want to help those people with the weaker constitution, trying to grab, what that God was just God, love, love, love. Think about it this way. Think about all those compromised, false, deceiving teachers out there that use the lingo of the Bible and even hold the Bible in their hand, leading people astray, calling themselves shepherds, but they're not. They are mouthpieces of Satan the devil who wants to destroy every soul. Think about that. First and foremost, what is a false teacher? He works for Satan. He works for the devil. He hates your guts. He wants to destroy your life. He wants your soul and eternal health forever. Think about it that way. And then you're like, oh, wow, that's scary. That is frightening. He's supernatural. He's invisible. He's very powerful. God, we need help. Protect us from the devil. Protect us from Satan. Protect us from his demons. Protect us from his minions. Protect us from his human mouthpieces who are teaching false doctrine, who are false shepherds like Jesus did. Protect us. So... That's in a very important ministry that a shepherd does who is faithful, and it's a, it's a ministry of protection. A shepherd, what does he do? He needs to protect the sheep from the wolf who wants to shred you to pieces. That's Acts chapter 20. And that's what Jesus does. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Well, we'll pick up next week and look at the three other points about the true part of a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day, uh, the Lord's day to gather with the saints, uh, to sing to you and worship you and to be with God's people, to meet new people as well is always a joy and we thank you that your churches are meeting all over the world today in obedience to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. You're the chief shepherd. You gave your life. You shed your blood for the church because you loved sinners. We thank you that your mission was to be sent by the Father to come into this cursed and fallen world to rescue anyone that would have an, an ear to listen to your truth, to be wooed by your spirit, to realize the wickedness of their own sin and to break down before you and bow the knee, cry out to you, Lord, save me. And you're so gracious to do that. You'll do that to anybody who knows what it 
and understands what it means and is sincere as they cry out to you. You're only a prayer away, so we thank you for that, God. And, and, and I just pray that if there is anybody here today who doesn't know you, who realizes that you are the only way, the only way of forgiveness, rescue, salvation, uh, that their sin is the barrier that separates them from the Creator and the Savior and the Judge, that through your Holy Spirit you would soften them, illuminate their understanding, bring them to a point where they cry out to you that you might rescue them. And we know that in your grace you will do that. They can be saved and we will rejoice with you as a result. That's our heart's desire, Lord. And we just thank you for all of this as we commit our day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.